The Career Establishment's Talent Talk Asia podcast is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. Founded by Asia-based recruiters back in 2012, over a thousand recruitment companies choose Vincere to accelerate their growth. Whether your business is contract, temp, executive search or perm, if you're looking for a new breed of tech partner, talk to Vincere. Visit vincere.com io forward slash talent talk asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast hi i'm andrea ross your host and in this series we feature some of the most successful talents from across the region to discuss the forces opportunities and challenges that are shaping the corporate landscape if you're keen to be a guest on the show then please reach out Hello, my name is Andrea Ross, your host for Talent Talk Asia and founder of the team building, leadership development and e-learning company, The Career Establishment. Join me for an exclusive conversation with Mark Francis, founder, director, advisor, associate producer of Silver Strand Executive Search, cleverly search and zettle and invoice financing platform based in Hong Kong. Mark will be sharing what his predictions are for the future of recruitment, what recruiters can be invested in now to pave a brighter and more secure future for themselves, and how having a finger in a few pies is a recipe for success. Hi, Mark. How are you today? I'm doing very good, Andrea. How about yourself? Thanks so much for having me on here. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Now, we've not actually met before. We've spoken to each other for, God, probably about a year or so via LinkedIn, mm-hmm. back and forward. And, and we sort of, um, obviously, with all the the riots and the pandemic and everything, that's kind of prevented us meeting. So I'm excited to have you on the show because there's lots of things that I want to know about what you're doing. You've got such an interesting background. So let's kick off. Um, you were born in Hong Kong to a British father and an Eurasian mother. Talk me through what was it like being brought up in Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, look, Hong Kong, you know, pre-handover was really quite a, an incredible place because you, know, you had this melting pot of cultures between the local Cantonese culture and then also the British influence. And, you know, my father came over in 1969. You know, he was sitting on a farm in Wales. It was cold and wet and miserable. And he thought, why am I doing this? <laughs> And he saw an advert in the Times to, to go and be a police officer in Hong Kong. So and he flew over. And uh, my mother also you know, was born in uh, what was then Ceylon. Um, her father was in uh, the shipping industry. And, and he was actually offered a job in Hong Kong. So they moved out here. And you know, it's always been sort of looked upon as um, a place you go to try and either you know, achieve something big or something aspirational. You know, it, it always kind of captures that yeah. environment. And you know, they met yeah. about a year after my dad arrived here. And, um, you know, oh. Hong Kong throughout the 70s and 80s was, was a really booming you know, economy. There was so much going on. Its financial mm. services market was rapidly expanding. So, you know, growing up in Hong Kong, it, it was a very, um, a very special time because, you know, when, you, when your families or your parents are civil servants, um, back then actually you had a fantastic life, um, you know, working in a sort of uh, civil servants lifestyle, having subsidized housing, uh, subsidized education, which you just don't get anymore. No, that must have been really interesting. So your dad was a policeman in Wales, though, I gather. He didn't just become a policeman in Hong Kong, I guess. No, no, he was a 20-year-old man uh, in university and he saw an advert and he came over and became a police officer. (laughs) So he started as a 20-year-old in the police training school here. Wow, that is so (laughs) interesting. Oh, my God. He would have so many great stories to tell. He does. Wow. He does. Not all of them, I think, are appropriate to share, to be honest with you. No, no, (laughs) probably not. No, probably not. So, I mean, there's that term that, that, you know, quite a few people use, which is this third-party kid. Um, Third-culture kids. Third, yeah, third party, third culture kid. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, you know, the, obviously that sort of individuals raised in a culture other than um, parents or their culture or their country. So do you sort of relate to that or, yeah, how do, how do you feel about that term, first of all? Um, to be honest with you, I would totally agree with that statement because, you know, I was born in Hong Kong. I've got permanent residency. I have a British passport for my father. You know, obviously used to go back to the UK every year. Well, I've got many relatives, but you know, definitely growing up in Hong Kong, you know, the majority of the population, you know, speaks Cantonese natively. 
Um, there mm. is a, a very large um, minority who still speak very good English, but you know, Cantonese is still the, you know, the, the number one um, spoken language on, you know, on the streets of the city. So in that sense, you're, you kind of sometimes do feel like a bit of an outsider. Um, yeah. Although it's your home and, and although you still have a lot of shared experiences, there is always that feeling in the background. So I think myself, you know, growing up and going to school here, as well as a lot of my friends who also grew up in a similar environment, they would definitely feel that they were third culture kids. Probably the right. embodiment of the term, actually. <laughs> would that would that have been different? If, I mean, do you do you speak Cantonese? Sikong uh, Susu. I speak a little bit. A little bit. Okay. Yeah. So if you were fluent in it, do you think that would have would you have considered would you have sort of experienced things a little bit differently because I know a lot of people say if you've really you know completely immerse yourself and you and you and you know the language you can view that home quite differently do you sort of Correct. face that if you do you think so, you would have that if you spoke it so a lot of my best friends um so I got married three years ago and I was looking at the photo of the wedding day and you know my wife was also you know born and brought up in Hong Kong and um you know I was also born here and I looked at all of my groomsmen and all but one were Eurasians who were funny enough half Chinese. So they are all, uh, or the vast majority of them were able to speak Cantonese. Um, yeah. So, you know, they also have got a similar experience, but they actually can still you know, engage and speak it fluently. And, and even they do also feel, I think, that they are third culture kids. There is that difference. Mm. Even though on the yeah. weekend, of course, they'll have, you know, family meals. Um, they'll go for yum cha, as they call it, you know, and, and have dim sum with the family on a Sunday and maybe play mahjong. They still have that, that culture. But um, yeah. they, they would, they do still feel um, somewhat different to it, particularly if one of the parents was, you know, British, Australian, or an American. So um, I do think that that's, um, you know, it, it is something that uh, that comes up. But you know, for me, I still consider Hong Kong to be my home. You know, it's, you it's where I was it born, it's where I grew up. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, I go to the UK pretty much every year. I've got a lot of relatives there, uh, and I have a British passport, and I have lived in, you know, in the UK, both in London as well as in uh, Cardiff. But, you know, definitely throughout my life, even when I've lived overseas, there was always that kind of yearning to, to come back to the city. Mm. Um, there, there is a pull that, that Hong Kong has and, and has had mm. for, for decades. Yeah. And so what, what, in what ways has this type of up, upbringing impacted your life, do you think? I think if I really look at it, probably the one thing it gave me is from a very early age, um, a very um, conscious idea that we lived in a, in a globalized world. You know, we are constantly connected to people overseas. Um, we're able to visit other countries. You know, these kind of options are available to you. Now, that could be due to perhaps the particular upbringing that I was lucky enough to have, um, yeah. you know, where I was, I was able to get those opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of that. But definitely, I think that it, um, it made you feel immediately a part of, of, a, of a broader world because, you know, you, ha you have a nationality of one place where you don't live. You're born up in another city but you're not necessarily a, a national of that particular place either. Mm. And also a lot of the cultural influence that we used to get growing up here in the 80s and 90s, most of it actually was American. It, it was American television, right. uh, American right. sports, right? Even though it was a British colony, the largest yeah. influence actually came in from, um, from US culture. So you kind yeah, of got that clash. Singapore at times. Mm. I think mm. Singapore can be a bit like that as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's really interesting. Now, you just looking at your background, you studied in Cardiff, your undergrad, and then you yeah. went and spent a year in China teaching adults to speak English. So talk me through what motivated you to do that. I guess, look, again, being from Hong Kong, of course, always on the doorstep of China. You know, the, the growth of Hong Kong was based upon the opening up of the Chinese economy for, you know, for four decades. So, you know, when I moved to, to Cardiff, I, I'd always intended to actually go and spend some time in China straight after university because I really wanted to pick up some Mandarin. Um, I just mm. could tell that it was already been spoken by at that point over a billion people. Um, that was only yeah. going to increase over the next few years. You know, even back in sort of 2000, 2002, you know, I think most people knew that the Chinese economy was, was revving up um, and it was going to have a, a larger influence in the world um, as, as it does now. So the idea was to go there, try and pick up a, a decent level of Mandarin. Uh, and then, you know, after that experience, be able to use it um, you know, in business, ideally. So when I was living in Shanghai, I did, I did speak some pretty decent you know, you know, Mandarin because when you're there, um, yeah. particularly back in 2005, there really wasn't much in English. Um, right, you have, so you're forced to You have to, to speak Mandarin mm. to, yeah, to get around, whereas I think in Hong Kong, because of the fact that it is an official language still, perhaps people do get a, a little bit lazier here. But in China, yeah. you've got to pick up the language. So yeah, for that year, it, it was pretty decent, actually. But that was yeah, 15 years ago now. 
<laughs> so have you not kept, have you not kept it up? Have you kept can, it up or not? I can look if I'm uh, if I was speaking uh, Mandarin for a few days uh, in China, a lot of it would flow back pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. you know, in the office in the office in Hong Kong, we, about half the office speak Mandarin on a daily basis, and I do mm. pick up on the conversations. I sort of have an idea of what's been discussed. Oh, so they can't talk but, about you then. No, they can't. <laughs> they can't take the Mickey out of me behind my back. <laughs> So would you encourage your own kids to go and do that, finish uni and go and have an experience like that? I think so. I mean, you know, people do things like go on a gap year. I mean, it wasn't a gap yeah. year. I was working full time. But I do think it's important to have that kind of experience, be pushed mm. out of your safety nets. And I think one yeah. thing of kids who grow up in, a, in an international school environment or in an international city like Hong Kong and also Singapore is sometimes yeah. you can be a little bit too protected. Um, yeah, you know, it's much. almost mm. too safe, right? And, and sometimes you need to get out there a little bit and just experience a little bit more of the real world. Uh, and I think that was what it was about, yeah. was just trying to get away, be independent, um, spend some time and, and just try and work it out for yourself. So yes, I think I would. Whether you know, I would encourage them to move to China or perhaps to you know, South America or somewhere else, that would be up to them. Mm. But it's definitely mm. it's something I would encourage them you know, if they got to that yeah. stage and wanted to do it. Especially if they, especially if they can work as well, is you know they can st still fund themselves um, as opposed to the parents paying for that, it for the next few years. That helps a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, so in Jan two thousand and seven, you joined Carrington Fox. So that was a recruitment yeah. firm specialising in front office. Um, so, what led you to that particular career path? So I'd um, so I spent the year in China. Um, after that uh, year, I uh, I knew that I wanted to come back to Hong Kong. And uh, you know, try and apply um, the Mandarin that I picked up, uh, and actually try and find a full-time role again. You know, in the city. So I moved back. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was sort of the beginning of the winter, two thousand six. Um, so I right. sort of spent a bit of time just finding my feet. Um, you know, getting an apartment. Um, did have a couple of other interviews. Uh, I remember you know working uh, or having an interview for an editor role with a. Uh, a copywriting uh, publications company so oh, right. you know, lesson, coming up and, and coming up with like learning materials which was oh, right. you know you can imagine it's the amount of uh, attention to detail you need to have to that right they're oh, basically spending God, all day going through right grammar and spelling so it was it was something oh. I could do but you know as somebody who's got dyslexia it probably wasn't <laughs> the right role for me at that time <laughs> of my life I know um, <laughs> no it's a good job that you worked that one out that wouldn't work yeah and uh, <laughs> that would have been you know, a bit tricky nice wouldn't it sort of have that experience but then sort of at a similar time I also started um, um, an interview process with Carrington Fox I'd seen an advert actually on uh, eFinancial Careers uh, which was up and running in Hong Kong but quite early at that stage uh, and yeah. I saw that they were you know looking for a certain individual and I thought well you know that, that seems like something perhaps a bit more in line with you know my skill set and you know how it is mm. right? a lot of people we do we fall into recruiting right it's not necessarily Always. something that you're planning for yeah. all the way through university um, no. <laughs> but you know it, it came about I had a number of interviews uh, you know, with the team in Hong Kong as well as in London. And uh, actually I was the second hire in the Hong Kong office. Uh, the first really? hire is uh, funny enough, a guy that works opposite me even now. Uh, oh. So we were the first two <laughs> hires in that office, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. And so just, just what you were saying before about the dyslexia, has that mm -hmm. ever held you back? I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear more about, um, if you don't mind sharing no, no, that. I've fine. just sort I've, of I've thrown got, that on no, you. Uh, no qualms How about have you been? It? Yeah, I'd really. I mean, thank you for thank you for sharing that because I think you know sometimes people can feel uncomfortable to sort of share things like that, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm very grateful that you put that out there. How, how, if anything, has that affected how how you go about doing things in your life? So I was actually diagnosed a little bit later in life. I was 14 years old by the time my teachers actually picked up on it. So wow. what it meant is all the way up in, from through primary school and early secondary. You know, there was always a disconnect between you know verbal reasoning and logic and what was actually happening mm. on the page. And right. uh, it was one of my uh, one of my teachers actually flagged this up to my parents and, and got tested out at that stage. And you know, he was a bit shocked. He's like, "How have they not picked up on this before? You've got dyslexia, yeah. dysgraphia, and dyspraxia. Actually, you had all three of them." And uh, they were like, "Okay, we need to sort this out." So um, they said to me, "Look, you know, one of the key things that uh, that, that we should, we believe would support you is actually if you're able to do a lot of your work on a computer." So my mother, right. being the very attentive tiger mum that she is, um, <laughs> decided to put me into an evening college typing school. So I ended up as a 14-year-old oh, being sent to a secretarial school in Hong Kong. I, I was love the it. only boy. I was the only person under the age of about 25. And, um, <laughs> I, and the only way she could make me go is she would give me a bit of money. And I would go there on a Tuesday and a Thursday after school. 
And the only way she could make me go is there was a McDonald's in the basement of this building. <laughs> and my treat to myself for going and doing two hours of touch typing class is I would go and buy myself a McDonald's. And I kid you not, for every word that I had to type per minute, I gained a pound. And I was oh a child who could type with my eyes closed about 45 words a minute. And, but you're a bit uh, chubby. <laughs> I was a bit chubby. <laughs> I was a bit, yeah. 14 was not a kind age for me. But it helped a lot because now when I'm on the phone to somebody, I can have my eyes closed and I can just type and the whole conversation is there recorded. Now, I know I there's technology that. that can do it these days, but, you know, starting out in recruitment, that was actually a really useful skill because That's a I didn't really need to write useful out my notes. Yeah. An absolutely useful skill. And I, I love to hear that your mum did that and, and that you were the only boy. And I think I think it is a skill that should be in every school. I, I was the same. Yeah. I was I was forced into it, not quite for the same reasons. But right. I think actually being able to touch type and I know shorthand as well. And I think that mm -hmm. is so useful when you're trying to, you know, in recruitment where other than just, you know, otherwise it's just kind of the, you know, rushing to put candidate interview notes or client yeah. meeting notes up. I think it's a really good skill. Thank you for sharing that. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> so, um, so, so you joined, you joined in the front office side. You obviously knew nothing about one recruitment and two, anything about front office, right? Mm -hmm. um, so talk me through a little bit more about the role that you were doing and how you kind of picked everything up. Yeah, so, you know, they started us off and, and the pathway that Carrington Fox ran was, you know, you started off as a, as a researcher and you worked right. your way up through that, right? Researcher, senior researcher, junior consultant, all, all the way up to principal consultant. So right. over the sort of five years I was there, that was the pathway I had. The first two years, as they are, I think, in general in recruitment were the most difficult. Um, there was a huge learning curve that you have to go through. Um, I was very lucky that my, my manager director at the time uh, Rupert was was very um, very attentive, very patient. Um, he, he definitely helped uh, give me a lot of guidance, um, yeah. and that really helped. You know, there was uh, a lot of reading materials. Um, there was a lot of mentoring, mirroring as well. You know, watching how he was interacting with candidates and clients, mm, and really you know, that's useful. how it is. You, you just have to be a sponge, don't you? You just have to be a sponge, yeah. absorb as much as you can, um, and and obviously you get on the phone, you start speaking to candidates, you overcome your fears, your concerns about rejection, and you just um, you just speak to people. And that's the best way. You know, you continue, you learn, and you try and do your own learning outside of work. And, and that's kind of how it is. Even though if you don't necessarily have, or certainly back then, if you didn't have that background, you could pick it up. You know, you just had to have the commitment yeah. and, and put in the work. Yeah. You're um, not expected to actually do any trades, are you? So, um, not necessarily. You, just, you have to understand <laughs> right. what they're doing, but you don't have yeah, to. Yeah, understand, but not necessarily be able to do it. So, well, so I, I, I'm really intrigued in that you set up your own recruitment firm. You know, you left there to go and, to go and, um, build Silver Strand Executive Search at the age of 28. That's right. So I'm really interested to know, oh my God, you're, you know, you had the balls of steel to do that. What, you know, what <laughs> prompted you to go and to, to go it alone? So the main reason for it actually was the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. What happened then, we were sort of, you know, two and a half years or just over two years into our recruitment journey. Um, you know, we'd seen the bull market, we'd seen, you know, two year guaranteed bonus all sorts of incredible deals going around and then everything sort of stopped and in Asia there was a delay you know it hit in the US and in Europe first and then eventually it hit in Asia towards the end of 2008 and mm. you know really things got quite uh, quite dark I remember yeah, the absolutely. office in Hong Kong went from about 12 people to four um, you know it was pretty dramatic in, in how much they had to cut people and you know really they you know they, they said to us they said look you know this is the way it is You've got to eat what you kill. Um, otherwise, there could be further cuts to the business. And, you know, myself and even now my now business partner, Dennis, you know, we just went out there. We went into the market uh, and we started to speak to people and understand where was the, where was the, the market moves happening? Where was there still demand? Now, um, my, for myself, I looked into the buy side. So I approached hedge funds. I approached prop trading firms, organizations that at that time actually were um, taking advantage of the fact that banks were making a number of cuts and they were picking uh, up a lot of talent, okay. um, you know, without necessarily having to put out uh, large guaranteed packages. So that there was still a market for that in Asia. And my business partner, Dennis, actually, he is a you know, native Mandarin Cantonese. So he went and reached out to a lot of the local firms. So we'd actually already built up a client base of our, ourselves. And 2009 was actually a very good year for us. You know, I think that was you know, one of the best years I'd had because we found where the demand was coming from. Mm. And we got in there quite quickly. So that experience, I think, you know, showed us that we knew how to build out a client base and had done it at quite an early age already. So, you know, in 2012, when we were sort of discussing, 
you know, is this the right time? Should we, should we go and do this? You know, we, we've said to ourselves, look, we've already done this. We've built the client base, you know, ourselves. We know how to do it. Um, and we sort of, we built a decent reputation and, and I thought, look, let's just go and, and do it ourselves. And the way it works is, and this is something I, I'm a big believer of is, is having a, um, a co-partner, you know, some, some yeah. entrepreneurs, they want to do everything themselves. They want to manage it all themselves. It's my business. But for me, you know, I enjoy working with people. I enjoy working with different individuals, right? So you have to balance out the personalities. And I think where I might take yeah, more risk, Dennis, exactly. Dennis is more risk adverse. And I would take more risk. And you find right. the happy medium. You right? you tend to make the right decisions over time. Yeah. As long you as probably you stretch him in certain areas, but he pulls you back when you need sort of reining in on things, probably. Correct. Yeah. It, mm. it is in essence that. And it actually worked quite nicely. So we knew that we could we could do this together. And, and that's what we did. So 2012, we, we went out, we set up our own office. It was this tiny, tiny office you know, in Central. Where was that? It was uh, well, just between Central and Xiongwan. Um, so right. just a little bit out of the main CBD. Um, in the same area what, now? Are you in the same area now or you moved? We're, we've moved twice since then. Yeah. Right. So it's a similar area, not too far away, but, but a similar spot. And, uh, you know, back then it was just these two desks and a window and that was the room. <laughs> and, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty intense for the first, you know, certainly for the first couple of years. And what does that, what does that business look like now? Like what does it, what does Silver Strand, you know, represent in the market? Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so Silver Strand, you know, financial services focused um, with, with a heavy emphasis on the buy side. So uh, the vast majority of our clients are hedge funds, uh, prop trading firms and family offices. Now, one thing is, is targeting a specific niche. And, you know, we went into that market and we know it well. But I think one of the other things that, um, that we, are, we are focused on was, of course, doing everything, you know, with integrity, following the right procedures and processes, but also using technology at a very early stage. And this is something that we um, were always conscious of. Um, you know, we always wanted to try and incorporate tech into the recruitment process. So like back in 2015, we actually built a, a, a scraping algorithm, an SFC scraping algorithm that would actually scrape the, uh, the SFC database in Hong Kong. And it would create a, uh, a, a moving map of every licensed individual from type one to nine and all the organizations that they worked at, which allowed us to sort of um, use it as a lead generation tool. So, you know, we would, we would do things like this just because wow. we saw a gap in the market for it. We didn't know a tool like that that existed. Did and, you you know, it? and we, well, it's actually now incorporated into a slightly different business. Um, so it still works, but it's underneath right. a different name. Um, back then it was called uh, Grapevine Daily. Uh, so we ran that for a couple of years. Um, so that was, you know, one of the things that we did that was quite different. And I think that's sort of something we always wanted to have is, with our team is, you know, there's so many executive search firms out there, right? There is a low barrier to entry you know it can be done and, and people are entrepreneurial yeah. they're good salespeople. they want to build a business um, so it's sort of how do you have an edge or what can you do to differentiate yourself or provide a different service so that was one of the routes that, that we saw was trying to utilize technology and, and, and make the use of all these tools to offer something a little bit different so I suppose that, that was one of the, uh, the things we enjoyed doing but that must be something you're quite passionate about that you, you know not everyone would just necessarily think of something like that right that must be, is that something that you or or Dennis is kind of into that you you like to to innovate to look at new you know new ways of doing things and making it more efficient or yeah I think you know just maybe personality styles or or the fact we were a bit younger when we set up the business whatever the reason was you know mm. we we just wanted to always try and incorporate you know new tools I mean you know I remember when LinkedIn first came on the scene in recruitment and actually there was people who were they were completely against it. You know, they thought that this was, uh, this was, was wrong. <laughs> this, is this is a public CV. You know, it's, you're putting your CV on display. And it's, yeah, it's never going you know, to get off the ground. Yeah, no one's going to do this. Why would you share your personal details? And, you know, we looked at it and then we're like, well, no, everyone is sharing their CV publicly and they're allowing them, us to reach out to them with their contact information. This is incredible. And yeah. you know, there was sort of that divide. Yeah, I is. remember seeing that, you know, and, and sort of, there's always sort of early adopters, right? The, the early adoption is, yes. a, is, is a type of personality. Yeah. And I guess we're just, we were just one of those people. We wanted to, to try out these new technologies and see which works and you know, what could improve the process. When you first, when you first set up in, in 2012, what were sort of your key goals for sort of the first year and the second year? I'm interested to know because I always think it's for people that are thinking of setting up businesses, it's always good mm -hmm. to sort of get an idea of kind of what your priorities at that stage. Um, I'll be honest with you, it was survival in the first year. It was just about survival. <laughs> just we to just pay the wanted, rent every month. Yeah, we just wanted <laughs> to pay the bills. 
You know, my yeah. business partner at the time had uh, got, just got married. I think he was getting ready for his first kid. You know, there oh, was a lot wow. going a lot on going in on. our lives. You know, there's a lot going on mm. in our lives. We just wanted to survive that first year. Um, right. And I think, um, you know, also you know, I had a couple of things going on and, you know, personal-wise, family-wise at that time. So there was a lot of instability anyway outside of work. So we just wanted work itself to be very stable. That was the key thing so, for us. We wanted so to when survive, did it start getting to stable. When did it start getting to a point then where you could start to plan, to structure, yeah, yeah and, and have and be able to us, identify those goals? The key thing for us, I think, was definitely um, adding talent to the team. Um, I think yeah. we maybe we took a bit longer than, you know, on reflection, looking back, if I'd done it differently, I would have probably tried to bring uh, somebody else in earlier. Um, Interesting. It, did, it took us what, about two right. years. Sorry, what was that, Andrea? Oh, just so. What 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 held you back then? You said that, that if you look, that if you could do it again, you would you would have hired someone sooner. What was it that held you held you back from doing that then? I think Quick, we were just. Um, I think we were just being a little bit too cautious at the time. Um, yeah. You know, just looking at the, the market, given it was still a relatively new business and a new brand. I think we were slightly too cautious in the early years, and uh, you know, it took us two years to bring in our first um, external hire. So on reflection, that was something we probably should have done sooner because even though the first you know, three to four months, there, there is a much heavier involvement in yourself in, in helping to get them trained up, you know, and, and probably the first six months. But as they start to you know, get, a, get a handle of the business and understand what it, what it does, it, it does sort of take away um, you know, some of the, the burden that you're going through or some of the time commitment that you've got. So I think that was the, the big difference. And all of a sudden, it clears up a little bit more headspace for you to sort of focus on okay, what else can I be doing in this business? Where else do yeah. we need to innovate, right? And that's how yeah. Great by Daily only really came about after we'd added a couple of people to the team and we were able to take the time to look at objectively and think, okay, how can we improve this? How can we do this better? So that only really came about sort of 2014, I would say. Okay, I'm keen. Where did, where did the name Silverstrand come from then? <laughs> uh, Silverstrand is actually the name of a bay in Hong Kong. Um, it oh, is a is it? beautiful part of the city. It's a beautiful part of the city. It's, um, I'm not sure if you've been up to Saikung Peninsula before or familiar with that part of the city. I'm, sort of I'm, the country. I'm not sure. Okay. It's sort of up near a country park. And, um, okay. you know, it, sort of, it faces east. It's actually away from the major city itself. And it's just right. a beautiful part of the, the city. And actually, I used to spend a lot of time up there. So it was a name that, although it sounds very international, actually means a lot. To, to Hong Kong specifically. Yeah, so that okay. was how the name had come about, yeah. Nice, perfect. I was, I was keen to know where that one originated from. I'm going to look <laughs> that up after the podcast. I'm going to have a look at some <laughs> images on that. <laughs> so, you know, what surprised you, you know, positively and negatively about when you set up your, your own firm? Um, I think for us, one thing that um, I was a little bit surprised about was um, actually um, trying to do BD, um, trying to bring in new clients, I did think that there would be a lot more pushback from the, um, the human resources teams due to the PSL. Uh, I thought it would be a lot right. harder to actually onboard new clients than it became. Uh, that was actually yeah. a surprise for us was we actually could onboard a lot of clients. Uh, and I think that's one thing that we do a lot of is, is BD. You know, we, we enjoy doing it. We love networking, um, meeting yeah. new people. So, you know, BD then actually becomes um, quite enjoyable. You know, it's not something that you worry about or fear. It's something you look forward to every day. Um, you know, because it's new business for the, you know, for the company. So I think that was one thing that um, was surprising was, uh, you know, how readily we could, you know, get in these BD clients. Um, but, that you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of, you know, negatives, I think that it's things away from the recruiting side. So sometimes the administrative and the operational side of things, yeah. it yeah. becomes, you know, it becomes quite intense, you know, when you're constantly yeah. having to renew documents um, having to go through different license procedures. I mean, that all actually yeah. starts to aggregate and uh, it takes away from your core business. And I think that was also yes. something which, again, we hadn't quite anticipated how much there would be. Mm. Uh, yeah. um, that was and you're not always at the point that... where you can afford someone to look after that either. That You know, it's, you, you're having to sort of juggle and do that role until you're at the point you can actually hand that over to someone, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think that was one of the things that, um, mm. you know, we weren't quite uh, as prepared for. Uh, and that was probably a bit of a negative, which is trying to stay on top of all of that admin and operational work. 
So let's let's move on to you being the big juggler of multiple businesses, because I think you're the first person on the show to actually look after three businesses. So let's fast forward to 2017. You you set up a you set up a second recruitment business called Cleverly Search Limited. I'm keen to know where that name came from, um, (laughs) that focuses on the construction industry. So sort of the engineering, architecture, project management and contracting, which is obviously completely different from the front office side at Silverstrand. So Talk me through kind of the, you know, was that an intentional thing, you know, and kind of what, what prompted that second business? I mean, it can't have been that you were bored, surely not. Talent Talk Asia is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. Visit vincere.io forward slash Talent Talk Asia for an exclusive offer for all listeners of this podcast. Yeah, I mean, look, um, Silverstrand was, you know, was, was the core business that we set up initially. I had come from a finance recruitment background, so that, that made a lot of sense. Um, but I had, and we had always uh, you know, discussed, you know, looking into other business lines, um, whether it would be to expand underneath the Silverstrand brand or whether it would actually be something different. So you know, as part of that, I'm always constantly, you know, networking with other recruiters in the city, um, yeah. you know, just to catch up, just have a drink or a coffee, just get to know. I can so see that in you. Yeah. I can so see that in you. <laughs> Natural you know networker. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, you like to meet people, right? There's not always an yeah. agenda. You just want to get to know what, what they do, what their aspirations are. Mm. And uh, there, was, there, was a, there, was this, there was two people I was speaking to, uh, one of which is, is my current business partner, Monica. Um, she had also come from an extensive recruitment background and also had a pretty good understanding of the construction market. And she was trying to work out what she wanted to do uh, next. So, you know, we started talking about this for, for quite a number of months. And uh, we saw that we, you know, we saw there would be an opportunity for us to build out a, a construction recruitment business. Um, again, focusing on trying to apply the same principles that we did at Silverstrand. So yeah. trying to be very executive search focused, trying to adopt technology, trying to utilize the same kind of philosophies that we had and apply it in a different yeah. area. So we did that. We brought on board, um, you know, two other quite experienced consultants, you know, both of which have got, you know, well over a decade of experience each you know, in the market in Hong Kong. Um, you know, brought them on board and, and, you know, in the last sort of three and a half years have also built what is still a very much a boutique business. You know, it's kind of three and a half years in now, but has, again, achieved, I think, stability and is now trying to sort of build itself out as, as a more recognized name you know, in the city. Um, and I think the reason I was able to do that, and I'm, I'm always going to be very thankful for that, but it was because my business partner at Silverstone Dennis was, was understanding that this is something you know, that I wanted to do. I also wanted to work with, with different people. Um, I always think that, you know, side projects are, side, are a good idea. You know, and we encourage it even to our staff. We, we do say have a side hustle, have a side project, something that, yeah. you know, keeps the creative juices going. Um, try yeah. and apply these, you know, concepts, feel like a passion for what you do because nobody yeah. wants a monotonous robot. You want people, you know, who are inspired, who've got different ideas. So that was kind of, we were said, well, look, if we're going to say this, we have to practice what we preach. And that's kind of how it came about. Um, so, you know, we, we want to out that team and it's, you know, it's, it's going pretty well at the moment. I think the good thing with Cleverly is um, they probably do a little bit more retained work uh, than right. Silverstrand does. So that's also been a bit of a learning curve, you know, for me as well, to be mm. a part of that retained model. I thought it would be um, the other way well around, actually. Mm. Yeah, you would have thought so. I know, you would have yeah. thought it would be the other way around, but uh, actually yeah. it wasn't. It was, it was, it was the other way. That is interesting. What, what, so what, so was the driver more that you could experience working with different people? Is that why you decided not to put it under Silverstrand? Because you could have just put, you could have just added in a construction arm, right? And within Silverstrand. Could have, could have. Um, yeah. The main reason was actually we, it was a different business partner. So I wanted to give, uh, you know, Monica, as it was at that time, the opportunity to actually have her own business. Uh, oh, okay. That was the model. So the idea was um, to partner up with, Someone who also wants to build their business and then grow okay, it together. It. So that's kind yeah. of how it comes about, you see. So that's why there's a few different entities because to bring them into Silver Strands, it would have been a bit more complicated to negotiate yeah, having I a stake understand. in the business. Yeah, I think it's quite similar. We've had um, Ethan Tan on the podcast, which is part of. Oh, yes. Um, I think I listened next to that. One. Way. Yeah, so it's sort of similar. It seems to be something that is becoming a little bit more the norm now, which is obviously quite unusual for me. You know, you don't normally see that where, you know, you know people are are investing in people um to build up a business that's separate than their own so i think i find that really fascinating um so 
So some would say running two businesses hard enough. Then in 2008, you set up Zettel, which is an invoice financing business. Yeah. So again, why set it up? <laughs> what was sort yeah. of the reason that prompted that? You know, and why why at that particular time? Okay, so it came about because um, with uh, actually with Silversham, we were looking at trying to set up a contracting book. And um, right. you know, to do that, I wanted to have a trade, a trade finance agreement in place with a commercial bank. So you know, I went to HSBC, Hang Seng, Standard Chartered, all of the large commercial banking departments in Hong Kong. And the problem was, because we were a privately owned recruitment business, so involved in human capital, we didn't have much in the way of a physical asset that we could post as collateral. And right. they didn't really know how to provide us with the kind of financing that we needed. And, you know, as you know, you know, the majority of the contracting business is still run by you know, the, the much larger established firms. You know, some of your, you know, some of the ex-firms you've worked with, you know, large yeah. list of recruitment companies, they actually have the large majority of the contracting market. Absolutely. So, yeah, so this is where it came about is they weren't able to provide us with the kind of, you know, financing that we required. So, again, <laughs> I thought, well, okay, well, that's frustrating, but there is, a, there must be a way we can do this. And uh, actually, I went back to... Um, the development team that helped us to build the SFC scraper. And I said to them, look, is there a way that we can use technology to create a, um, an automated trade finance, invoice financing type platform um, and try and automate all these processes and, and service professional services firms, so starting with recruitment companies. And, you know, we looked into it, you know, for quite a while. I think the business has been, been working the business for about two years. And, and we worked out that, yes, it can be done. And in July last year, Zettel officially started to, uh, finance uh, clients in both Hong Kong and also in Singapore. It's live in both cities. Um, wow. So actually, Zettel is already up and running in Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, the CEO what kind is of clients based here. Then? Prim kind of primarily, it's recruitment companies. So it's um, it's privately owned recruitment companies, uh, unlisted, uh, probably under you know under twenty uh, under twenty headcount, of which wow. it's still okay. actually the largest portion of the market in Asia. Right, about sixty five percent of recruitment companies have less than twenty employees in Asia. So it's still the, yeah. the, the largest yeah. market share. So it is a large there's this volume. huge SME recruitment market that maybe want to have, you know, contracting financing in place, maybe want to have automated payroll, bookkeeping, all of these other solutions built in for them. So that's actually how it came about. Um, so it's really interesting. And yeah. do you think yeah. that, do you think three businesses is going to be enough for the time being? Or do you think <laughs> you might, you know, you might need another th a fourth or fifth, what do you think? <laughs> Look, the hardest thing, as you can imagine, <laughs> is time management, right? It's trying to stay yeah. on top of your calendar and trying to ensure that you're not um, neglecting um, any of your responsibilities to these businesses, right? Because the one thing I'm always conscious of is, you know, I can't spend too much time on one of them because I'm neglecting another one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, this comes around for a couple of reasons. One is, like I mentioned, I've always got a business partner or two. So every business yeah. will always have one or two other partners who even if my time is, is separate for a few hours in that day, you know, they can carry on with the business. So yeah. th that's one thing that definitely helps. Um, two, it's just being a demon when it comes to time management and just having your entire how day would... broken down. So I've got, a, yeah. I've, got a, I've got my calendar, which you'll see is just made up of multicolored lines going all the way down it, which is different businesses and different responsibilities. Oh, I love so it. Calls, I love meetings. Like yeah, preparing yeah. for all of that. And also just having the use of tools like Slack, Trello, Pipedrive, Airtable, all of these different either yeah, CRMs yeah. or cloud-based messaging platforms, it allows you to be constantly plugged in, right? Either on your laptop, your desktop, your mobile phone, you can actually be constantly engaging with individuals throughout the day. And you said Airtable, Trello, what was the other ones you mentioned? Pipedrive. Pipedrive is the other one, um, okay. which is um, yeah, just sort of like a... Uh, process management software uh, so allows you to visualize what you're doing and then slack which i think so many people are used to these days yeah. slack is yeah. probably the best actually i, I use Slack okay. religiously every day so do you find then that you're getting to that level of detail where even when it's preparation for the main task you're doing that's already factored into the diary like yeah everything's i mean you know, factored in. the key thing is you can also do apart from just using you know tools yeah, the other key things which you know a lot of people always do is you know meditation every day um, exercise every day. So even with all of this going on, I'll always try and meditate at the beginning of the day, just to try and sort of reset your brain as you wake up. And then I'll always try and do the gym when gyms were open in Hong Kong. I would try and do the gym uh, oh, over lunch, right. so that you can um, you get over that lull in the afternoon. 
So just to go to the gym at lunch and then, um, you know, work through the, the afternoon. So I think that also kind of helps just to sort of, the whole day is not just made up of you know, meetings, calls and work. You do have yeah, moments you're breaking in there up to break health. it up. Mm. I like that. Are you going to bed really late though? I mean, you're saying you've got all these good time hacks, but are you going to bed at like two o'clock in the morning? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the worst. It's probably, I'm probably available for about maybe 16 hours, 14 hours of the day. Yeah, probably 14 hours of the day. I'm, I'll be contactable. Um, but I'm not right. always at the office, right? It's um, you can be working from home, you can be working on a, a commute. Uh, and are you yeah. are you taking holidays off when it comes to running three businesses? I mean, I know it's a bit difficult to talk about holidays now. <laughs> that yeah. word we don't know anything about right now. <laughs> it seems like an issue this year, but yeah. yeah, it is. But like last year and stuff, would you know? Do you take time out, or do you find that it's kind of you know running three businesses that it's just work, work, work? Look, I think that uh, for certain holidays, you know, times like Christmas. Uh, maybe Easter when there when there's public holidays when you know the majority of our clients perhaps aren't working, um, then there is downtime and you can actually disconnect and and really be uh, you know completely present and where you are. Um, if I'm on holiday and it's not a traditional you know not a traditional public holiday or anything like that, then I do find that you know on, on occasions throughout the day I will be checking my phone just to see what's going on. I can't help it. I know that it's not it's not good. I'm not sort of encouraging this. People should be able to. to <laughs> but your to wife hates up. it. <laughs> well, actually, I'm lucky. She also works very hard. So um, right. I guess in that sense we can kind of support each other. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's probably the one thing that um, yeah it's, it's very hard to completely switch off, particularly if you yeah. know uh, the offices are open. Yeah. No, I get that. And thanks for sharing some of those those. Um, systems that you're using i think that might be interesting i'll put those in the show notes so i'm keen to talk about the hong kong market i love yeah, hong kong yeah. i think it's just such a vibrant um place to go it's so it's so it is just so vastly different um from singapore in so many ways so you know hong kong's had a really rough time over the last two years with the riots and now obviously yeah. like many places around the world been hit by covid so at the time of this recording there is a debate whether hong kong will go into another lockdown now where are we where are you at with that right now what's happening yeah, so basically, um, we're not in a total lockdown, but right. most things are closed. So there's no cinemas, spas, gyms, all bars are closed. Um, you can go to a restaurant for lunch, but you can't go for dinner, which is a bit oh, of a weird right. thing. Uh, as if oh. the virus knows the difference between the evening <laughs> and the day. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, it's brilliant. their policy. So you can't get uh, dinner. So basically, people are sort of staying at home in the evenings because there's nowhere to go. And even if you do go outside, you have to wear masks. You can't yeah, go for an evening jog unless you wear a mask, right? Which is yeah. quite difficult in, you know, when it's 33 degrees and 90% oh. humidity to run outside yeah. with, a, with a mask mm. on your face. So, you know, it's, it, is, it is tough. Um, we can still leave our homes. So we're very thankful for that. You can get out. Um, yeah. Most offices are also working from home. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 our cases are sort of about 4,000 in total. Uh, and okay. the moment it's about 80 okay. a day. So, you know, it's sort of, Yes, it's, so it's, it's happening, but it's not like we're in... still quite high. Yeah, it is. But at least it's, we're not quite in sort of the thousands every day. No, That was no. a big concern, right? If it really spread so rapidly. And we have seven and a half million people in a relatively small city. Um, so that's, you know, where the concern comes from. So actually, they've probably done quite a good job then at containing that. So what with, with, all, with all that sort of bearing in mind with so much that's been affected that's gone on within Hong Kong the last couple of years, you know, what areas remain in demand in Hong Kong? You know, and, and sort of why is that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, finance has always been, you know, king here. It's, it's such a huge part of the economy. Now, you know, with the US-China trade war and, you know, some of the sanctions that are happening, it is having an effect, you know, and, and we expect that, that will continue. Um, you know, if you're a US bank dealing with you know, certain customers in, in mainland China, whether it's commercial banking or private banking, it's going to affect your ability to service them effectively if for whatever reason you're not able to finance or process any of these transactions on your network. So, Although they, some of the U.S. organizations or some of the more international institutions may need to perhaps pull out, there will always be other organizations that will step in because you know, those clients still need to be serviced. Now, whether they are Chinese organizations or from elsewhere in the region, somebody will step in and, and sort of fill that gap. So we still see there being activity in the finance space. Um, the other big one is, is IPOs. Um, there's going to be a lot more Chinese companies listing in Hong Kong. Um, they're not going to okay. be going to the. Uh, they're not going to be going to the Nasdaq, the FTSE. Um, they're not going to be going to to New York. They're going to come to Hong Kong. They're going to list here. So it means the IPO market is actually going to be quite buoyant. So we expect that that's going to lead to there being more deals and the more need, you know, more of a need for for investment bankers who can support that. Um, so we do still see there being growth in that market. 
And then you know, the other one, although we're not really doing it ourselves, but you know, life sciences, you know, there's still a huge yeah. growth in that space and that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, what about construction think, and stuff as well? Because you're with Cleverly and stuff. What is there sort of government projects that are still going ahead or? Yeah, it's one of the few things, one of the things the government can do to prop up the economy is, is obviously green light infrastructure projects. Yeah. So th they've continued to do that. Uh, they just announced that uh, Terminal 2 is going to be moving ahead. Um, that's a huge huh. multi-billion dollar project that will take yeah. you know years. So the thing with the construction space, and it's interesting to see the difference between that and finance. You know, they're, they're looking at sort of five to 10 year horizons, right? It's so long term in their view. Finance is looking right. about how do I maintain you know, profitability today, next week, next month. You know, it's much short term in, in its view. So what it means is although there has been a dip when let's say construction workers aren't able to be on site or when people are working from home, it's harder to tender for a project, but it doesn't stop. It's just been delayed slightly. And if you look at it over a 10 year period, there will be a slight blip this year in terms of the time frame. but the projects are still moving ahead and you know, engineering firms, architecture firms and contractors, they're all getting ready to, to work on that. So actually the market is, is yeah, still, um, still quite active and with the Greater Bay Area integration, right, this big project they're working on, um, that's just going to mean closer integration between Hong Kong and all the other cities in the Pearl uh, River Delta. Interesting. And so what have you seen that's declined then? What areas? Um, where have we seen a big decline? Well, uh, definitely F&B, um, yeah, you know, because of, of the fact that they're all shut. Uh, retail yeah. also taking a hit, in, and obviously aviation. Hong Kong's a big aviation hub. Um, there's been a huge hit there. I mean, Cafe had to just get a $5 billion loan, uh, and uh, there's, you oh, know, there's really? been more struggles with the other, yeah, the other airlines here. So yeah, those are probably the big three. Um, yeah. What's been interesting is you know, the government came out with a, a wage subsidy scheme a few months back. And um, you know it actually worked. They're paying 50% of an employee's salary up to a cap of $9,000 uh, per month. But you know you aggregate that over hundreds of thousands of employees. So it's actually um, helped to maintain the um, the employment rate of where it is so far. But that scheme mm. expires at the end of September. So what you we might forecast, need to extend that, right? um, yeah. yeah, I think at the end of September we'll start to see more cuts coming in because yeah. companies well, they will not be obligated to keep those staff anymore. So yeah. Um, I think at the moment it's about six and a half percent unemployment. That should that should shoot up, I think, by October. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, let's shame. let's yeah. hope that they either extend that or you know there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. So the the one sort of I mean, let's move move forward to the topic of you know the future of recruitment because I know we mm -hmm. were talking about that before we we uh, when we were setting up the podcast and yeah. you know. Um, as stated by the World Bank, you know, robots are taking thousands of routine tasks and will start eliminating many low-skilled jobs in advanced and developed countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, our kids growing up now will work in jobs that may not even exist today. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty daunting thought. You know, in what ways do you believe recruiters should invest in themselves to be ready for a new future? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the thing, right? Even when LinkedIn came on the scene, people were talking, is this the death of recruitment? And it wasn't recruitment revenues actually shot up. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of these things. I'm, I understand the concern, you know, with the influence of AI, um, but I probably lean more towards the side of, yes, AI will disrupt and will probably eliminate a number of jobs, um, you know, whether it's, you know, in terms of automating, you know, factory processes or even, you know, accounting and auditing work. But I do also believe it will create other opportunities. Um, whether they're all technology-based, I do think there will be uh, new jobs that will come available. So I do I lean that way. So what I think in terms of recruitment, you know, we're already seeing a number of organizations out there that are trying to create you know, machine learning algorithms um, based upon yeah. AI that can actually look at a, um, you know, a job description, look at a CV, and then automatically do you know, a, a word comparison and sort of try and come up with filters that will create a you know, percentage of accuracy. How good is this profile for this role? on paper yeah so you know that that's on great. paper mm. oh on great right that, that's great but it doesn't take in any of the qualitative factors it doesn't look at any sort of psychological metrics you know there's always other factors that are missing and although yeah. you can get psychometric examinations and all these other ways that people try and evaluate individuals it's still a little bit too narrow i think in its focus yeah I people think there's still hire be... for social skills don't they, they which do. you can't see from necessarily they, algorithms yeah they're higher through the network they're higher because they like somebody you know, they're hired yeah. because they've shown a certain aptitude that maybe didn't come up in their academics. So, you know, I yeah. think that that's important. You know, it's not going to completely eliminate all of these recruiting jobs. I think there's, it's one of those roles that is still involves, you know, heavy human touch. And it's quite hard to automate that process. 
So I still think, you know, for recruiters, there's opportunities there. But the key thing is they, they have to be able to try and stay ahead of the curve, right? You have to be willing to reskill. Maybe you have to look at a, a completely different area. If your market, let's say if you're looking at accounting and, and finance, and for some reason that processes can be automated very quickly, or maybe even compliance, which can also then be automated quickly. Yeah. Perhaps you need to pivot into a different sector of the market, which will take longer, yeah. you know, whether it's life sciences, whether it's legal, whether it's some other avenue. Um, yeah. That's sort of what you have to be aware of. So I think people are going to have to be flexible uh, and be willing to kind of reskill um, as, uh, you know, as perhaps their market tries to start to slow down. So that, that's probably yeah. the, the big one, I would say. No, I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I'm even seeing the last few months, quite a few people approaching me that recruiters saying, you know, you know, is it worth me becoming a coach recruiter? You know, being a, still a recruiter, but taking, you know, but certifying as a coach or certifying in certain tools so that they can offer something different than pure recruitment so that there's another reason why that client should be using them, which I think, again, is is a good thing. You know, as long as you yeah. keep up with that and you're not, you know, um, you're still keeping that kind of quality. And, and I think that's actually a, a good idea to be offering different things to, to clients. Um so yeah, I'm I'm an absolute big believer in making sure that people are kind of investing in that because I think before you know it, those roles will look quite different. What what yeah. do you believe clients will expect recruiters to deliver in the future? What do you think that's gonna you know? Do you think that's gonna look different in the future? I mean, and I'm asking you as if you you're, you're like the, um, <laughs> looking into a crystal ball, yeah, but you know, I just sage. think it's a good conversation <laughs> to be chatting. <laughs> what yeah, do you think, I mean... Mark? Am I gonna win the lottery <laughs> next week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look into my crystal ball. Um... Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things. I think that um, clients are going to probably demand more of, of recruiters moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've talked about this, right? There's a lot more competition. Um, there, there are limited barriers to entry. So there are thousands of recruitment companies uh, and you're competing against all these firms every day. So how, how do you yeah. compete with them? You could compete on price, but that's a zero-sum game. You just end up, you know, selling yourself outside of, of, of a livelihood. Um, you can compete on speed, you know, but uh, again, that's just um, either it's technology based or you're not vetting candidates properly so i think the best way is to try and be accountable you know try and be accountable to your clients about okay this is what i'm doing this is the number of people i, I spoke to for this opportunity this is how i try to vet them you know you see some recruitment companies who do technology placements they actually do a coding assessment in the in the office first before they even send that profile to the end client you know they'll, they'll actually have somebody in the office who can do coding assessments to actually work out how good they are if they're not if they're not good enough they don't even send the profile Whereas before, uh, you might just get a technology yeah. candidate, you see on paper they can do it, you send it. So that's sort of one way you can kind of offer a slightly different service to them. Um, and I think also, and again, the sort of CRMs that are out there these days allow that. But you can actually give a little bit more performance metrics in terms of, you know, how, how do you deliver, how many uh, people do you need to speak to to find the right profiles for this particular role. Clients like yeah. to see data, and I think they will increasingly want to see you know, more data. So that's probably something else people need to be thinking. Yeah, of that's is, a good. In, that's you know? a good point on the on the CRM side. I mean, I think before you know, you always had to sort of try and do all your all the analytics yourself, and you know, yeah. go and see a client every quarter and be frantically trying to do the analysis. Where now, <laughs> that's right. That you know, and you yeah, have been there, done it, and now sort of to. You know, I've I've got Vincera because they they sponsor the podcast, yes. and and, mm -hmm. and I I use their CRM. Oh God, it's just lovely. I mean because it's run and because it was designed and it's owned by two ex-recruiters, right. um, you know that you're obviously going to get something that is really quite intuitive. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just simple, simple to understand, simple to plug in. And, and the analysis is lovely. So I, I agree. I think clients are going to be able to get way more um, information or data that, that can help them with that recruitment search, you know, know exactly how, how, how that's going can change direction with that search need be then sort yeah. of waiting a whole month for a short list of CVs and, and, and wondering why it's not necessarily working. I think it just gives both, I think it allows a more of a partnership actually with being able to have that data. So yeah, there's also, um, I'm not sure if you've come across Greenhouse before, which is a sort of slightly no. different type of platform. So a lot of uh, hedge funds and, and pop trading firms use Greenhouse, which is, it's in essence like a portal where the recruiter can communicate with the hiring manager um, sort of in real time. So you upload a profile to the portal, you can add notes to it, they have, you know, they can ask for the contact details, they can request interviews, it all happens through there. Um, and that sort of, again, is, is one of the tools that we're increasingly seeing being used. And you can actually have more than one client on it itself. So you could have, you know, maybe eight, nine, ten firms all using it. So uh, it's not really a CRM. It's slightly different. Um, I don't get that. Explain that to me again. Explain that to me again as opposed to me just sending a sending 
a CV to a client and then responding to me. What, what's yeah, the benefit so of that? Talk me through it's that. Like a, it's like a two-way login system. So uh-huh. each party is able to log in. The hiring manager and the, can, and the individual, the recruiter, can log into the platform. Um, you can upload a profile after you've spoken to the individual to that. And then in real time, the, the hiring manager is sort of reviewing that. They can see the notes that you've got. Um, they can also ask for other information and expectations, like you might have in an email, um, but it's just uh, all put into one um, warehouse, in essence. And then you can right, But this is a relationship you've got with the client, though. They've signed terms yes. with you. Yes. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. But okay. the, good, the clever thing about the platform is you, you can't, it doesn't just work with one client. Actually, any uh, client that uses the same software, you can also have the same interactions. So you have one login and you're able to communicate with multiple clients actually through the same mm. uh, software. So it's quite clever. Okay. It's not a CRM. It's a little bit different. But no, it, it's, that's um, interesting. What a funny name, Greenhouse. Greenhouse, yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how relevant it is. But, I wonder uh, why yeah. they yeah, throw, throw, throw stones at the greenhouse. I don't know. That's <laughs> different, isn't it? Um, so with the focus on costs in organizations, do you see a time where you know companies are going to require recruitment businesses to calculate more of the business impact on those hires you know i know you know when you've hired someone you know what's the retention rate and what's the impact mm-hmm. of that person do you think there's going to be a little bit more emphasis on that because i mean you know organizations aren't going to be particularly keen on paying huge recruitment fees right now right so what do you think they're going to be yeah. asking from recruiters over the next few months or what have you have you seen anything different that's come up from clients wanting a little bit extra for their fee yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it's probably not new, um, but we are seeing it more and more as, you know, salary surveys, competitor analysis. I mean, a lot of the time, a retained search firm would do this anyway, um, but we're finding that yeah. um, they're asking this even of a contingent search firm. You know, you really have to earn that fee um, and, and deliver a little bit more. So I think salary surveys, competitor analysis, that's something we're increasingly seeing them asking for. Um, and yeah. that will probably continue. Yeah. So that's probably the that's main. That's the hardest two. bit, though. Is that that's the hardest bit, though. It's okay to ask for it, but if you're working on a contingent basis, yeah, it's and you're not work, getting right? any jobs it's through, it's a, it's a hell of a lot of work. Hell of a lot of work to yeah. put. I mean, we'd take a whole year to get a blooming salary survey all kind of up mm-hmm. and running and stuff. It takes ages to get a decent one together and make sure yeah. it's actually up to date by the time it goes to print. It's not. It's not an easy exercise. Um, yeah. So, do you see a time where there be a migration away from LinkedIn? Huh. Okay. So um, there, there are a couple of tools out there which I think are trying to already do that. Um, they're probably already basing themselves on LinkedIn, but you could definitely do it, you know, off off that platform. So you get a lot of the uh, referral, you know, referral rewards programs, um, like you used to get mm. in a large organization. You know, you, you refer somebody, they get hired by the organization. Yeah. You get a you know nominal fee. So there are platforms out there now which are trying to sort of do that with the entire recruitment process, right? So yeah. there's a few firms out there that do that. And yes, okay, you could do it through LinkedIn, but actually it could be done through any social media. You know, it could be done mm. on Facebook, it could be done on Instagram, uh, or yeah. even it could be done, you know, off that. So those sort of platforms, you you are seeing them. There's a number in the US I know that do that. Okay, uh, that's interesting. So that's sort of something that I think recruitment firms will need to watch out for um, because yeah. it's a very different market and. You know, they, they do offer it at a very low uh, fee as well. Um, they yeah. don't call themselves recruitment firms. They're recruitment platforms. Um, yeah, right. Okay. But, uh, okay. You know, that's something I think to watch out for because in theory, you know, in that, in that case, you're just utilizing the referral network that, that you might have. You know, perhaps um, you never worked in the life sciences space, um, but you might mm. know somebody who just does work in a pharmacy or, or works you know, in a laboratory. And, and all of a sudden, you're, that is a network. And um, actually, by making introduction to that network, to this platform, you can be rewarded. So you know, these Ooh. these perhaps these types of tools are things people need to have, have to watch out for. Yeah, that's but again, really interesting. There's, there's another questions when it comes to vetting and, and and things like that, right? And in terms of how do you maintain the standard of those individuals? So that's something else to look out for. I think it's interesting when you're looking at the sort of the LinkedIn because obviously you know LinkedIn recruiter it's not cheap and you know there's a lot no, of costs on not. recruitment firms right now, right? And I doubt LinkedIn are reducing their rates during this time. Um, no, I think everyone's <laughs> right because they, they've that. cut a lot of people. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they've cut, cut quite a lot of people, um, haven't they? 10% so. of their workforce, right, two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, and Hong Kong they have, right? That's right, In Hong yeah. Kong they've, they've left quite a lot of people. a few people I know who are let go. Yeah, so let's, let's, so we're getting near towards the end of the podcast, but I want to ask, I want to um, talk to you a little bit more about the really interest, very interesting thing on your LinkedIn, if anyone spotted it, was <laughs> um, I want you to share with the listeners a project that you're involved with, which is the social movement. So yes. talk me through this. 
Okay, so The Social Movement is an Amazon Prime docu-series that's going to be released on Earth Day 2021. Um, it's also going to be available on iTunes and on the new streaming channel that's been launched called H2H, Human to Human. Human to Human? Human to Human, H2H, yeah. So uh, The Social Movement takes the um, process of Dragon's Den and The Apprentice, okay, um, but applies it in, in a very different way. So instead of um, trying to come on the show and you know, showcase um, you know, how good you are as, a, as an individual entrepreneur um, or business idea you're trying to pitch, um, what happened is they, they brought on board people from all over the world who flew into Montreal in the, the summer 2019 and were broken up into four teams and you were given an impossible problem to try and solve. So they call it a moonshot right. problem. And the idea yeah. is if you, if you had say 12 people who 12 strangers who'd never met, and you gave them yeah. this huge global issue to try and solve, what would they do? What would be their process? Who would they speak to, right? And, oh, and you I love film it. them going through it. So you know, I came and there was one other person from Hong Kong uh, who also also went over. There was people from Dubai, the But you're, UK. you're on the show. You're on the I'm show. On the sh yeah, I'm in the show in the first season. Yeah, I'm in one of the teams. So You're one of uh, the 12. I'm one of the 12, yes. Oh my God, that's so exciting. It's really, it's really interesting, yeah. And there was a... Uh, who did we have? We had like, um, I mean, it was all sorts of people. So we had the um, uh, this chief marketing officer from Procter and Gamble. We nice. had the CEO of a CBD oil company that's listed in California. Um, yeah. We had social media influencers with a million followers. You know, there was all sorts of people, all sorts of walks of life, uh, background. How did they find you? How did they get you on it on, so on the show? The producer had actually produced a couple of other shows in the past, uh, one of which was with James Kahn and uh, Lady Karen Brady, um, which yep. was called yep. love, Talent love. Masterclass, right? Karen and um, yep. so he actually produced it, Chris Lavoie produced the show. And uh, one of the people that was actually on that show was somebody that I know. Um, although right. she's based in the UK. So when he mentioned to that network that he was going to be looking to do a new show and he particularly wanted people from overseas, um, she very kindly mentioned my name to him. Um, so he actually Brilliant. reached out to me on LinkedIn and we had about half a dozen very intense, deep conversations on Zoom. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was, you know, you really, I bought into the vision that he had for it. And, you know, whether I would have, I'm not sure if I would have gone on Dragon's Den or The Apprentice necessarily, but when he explained to me what he wanted to do with this show, I, I was just blown away by it. I just thought, yeah. this is altruistic. It's something really sort of greater. Uh, and I wanted yeah. to be a part of it, you know. So um, I'd love to know yeah. what that global problem is. I'd love to know what that – can you say or not? Um, I can say what were the two options we had. I probably shouldn't say which one we chose. So the, the two options we had, one was um, how do we create 100% child literacy? Uh, yeah. And the other one was how do we prevent AI from destroying humanity? Oh <laughs> so God. it was interesting you asked about it. Wow. So. And basically, that was sort of the first debate was sort of which of these two questions you're going to answer. And then yeah. the idea is by the end of the week, you have to come up with a 14-page business plan with your five-year financial forecast, all of your scientific right. rationale. And right. then on the final day, you did a pitch like Dragon's Den to a panel Ooh. of secret judges. So yeah. it's intense. You've got a camera on you from about seven in the morning until midnight. And then you oh. repeat, you repeat, you repeat. So by the last day, oh. you're just emotionally, physically drained. But it's such an incredible experience. You know, you've built these lot, you know, lifelong relationships. And I'm still in contact yeah. with all of my team members now. You know, we, we still speak every so often. And you know, they've been renewed for season two. Is already going to film in October. And uh, I just heard recently, I think they've been renewed for season three, uh, filming next April. So um, why is so it not released though, then until well, next year? It, it was meant to come out this year, but because of uh, COVID. Um, they've had to delay it. I think they were going to try and do some some extra re-edits re um, for, for right. the series. I was going to say, right? more people would watch it, right? Because people are at yeah. home. So and That's what I was thinking. I, was thinking, I thought, yeah. well, surely we should speed this up and just get it out there. But I mean, if Tiger King can be number one on Netflix, <laughs> I mean, anything can... <laughs> Right. That was that was highly entertaining, though. That was that was really entertaining. <laughs> um, yeah, so no, you I, can't I say if you won or not, can you? That's it's obviously I can't not aired say yet. If we won, I can't say if we won. That's so exciting. In, uh, April next year. That's fantastic. I can't wait to find out more about that. That's really uh, that's really exciting. So um, we have got the last fire rounds to do. We've got a couple of minutes, and we're going to do some quick okay. fire rounds. And this is quick. I did a one recently. It wasn't so quick. So let's uh, okay. let's do it. Right. Kay, okay. What podcast or book are you reading or listening to right now? Podcast uh, Playing the Inner Game by Michael Campion. Uh, book 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, my gosh. That sounds awesome. What piece yeah. of technology can you not be without other than your mobile phone? 
Uh, headphones, sorry, I'm cheating, but I need them. Yeah, fair enough. Well, what one piece of advice would you give to a new recruiter starting out in Hong Kong to be successful? Uh, I would say, yeah, be like a sponge, increase your knowledge base and always be aware that you might need to reskill. Like it. What should you never, ever do as a recruiter and why? Okay. Do not be a ninja. And I say ninja because I had this, um, this one hedge fund manager years ago. Um, who always, we used to call him up and we always had gone on very well. But he said, you know, you recruiters, you're like ninjas. Come out of the dark with a roll, throw your ninja style roll at me, and then you disappear into the dark again. And I always sort of stuck with me. I was like, you know what? He's right. We shouldn't be like a ninja. We should be present. Always be yeah. engaged with out of the light. Don't just come mm. out of the blue, try and get something yeah. from them and disappear. Just constantly be engaging with them, build your network, be seen, be present. And I think that's how you'll be looked upon as, as a good and trusted recruiter. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for your time being a guest on the show. Now, if you would like to get in contact with Mark Francis, and please check out the notes on this episode where his contact details will be found, or just head to LinkedIn, Mark Francis, or email m.francis at silverstrand.com.hk. Um, I'm not going to give you all the other thousands of companies that he works for because we will be here all day. So if you've enjoyed the podcast and don't be stingy, share it with a friend, you know, change someone's perspective today. Um, And if you have an interesting story to share and you're in the talent arena and you're keen to be a guest on the show, then please reach out. Thank you so much, Mark. It was awesome. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. You're absolutely welcome. You have been listening to Talent Talk Asia podcast by The Career Establishment. To learn more about The Career Establishment, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at www.thecareerestablishment.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.